0: Names can be a very powerful thing. I mean, we all know that, either consciously or subconsciously, just in our own day-to-day lives. We know how good it feels when someone remembers our name, and we know how much almost power someone has when they remember our name and we can't remember their name. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? That someone comes up and says, "Oh, g'day, Luke. How you doing?" And you're thinking, "I should know this person's name, but for the life of me, I can't remember it." Names are a strangely powerful thing. You hear the expression "name dropping." Uh, that's when you know the names of famous people that you've been met that you've met or been introduced to, and you drop their name into a conversation because their name will make you look more impressive. But names are very, very unusual things. I remember back to my school teaching days when I was a casual teacher. Uh, When you're casual teaching, kids can kind of take advantage of that teacher on the day. Um, And someone told me an interesting classroom management technique. They said that if you're casual teaching, first thing you do when you get into the class is get all of the kids to write their name on a piece of paper and to place their name on the corner of the desk. And if any of the children misbehave, you take their name away from them. And from that point on, people aren't allowed to call them by their name. They're just allowed to call them boy or hey you. Now I tried this thinking this could be a great technique. I gave up by recess time because the kids were too distressed at having their names taken away. I had no idea that it was gonna have that effect. I never did it again. I'd never seen so much disruption come about from what I thought was gonna be a nice classroom management technique. Names are powerful things and that's exactly what we see in the passage of Acts that we're looking at today. It's a name that comes up all the way through this passage, a person who's not even there really in the story. It's the name of Jesus. Right, here's a little graph show, a, little, a list of all the passages where the idea of the name of Jesus comes up in this passage. It's the idea that's repeated the whole way through these two chapters. But if you've got your Bible there, go to the beginning of chapter 3, because it all starts with a seemingly simple little incident. Peter and John have gone up to the temple to pray. Now, I don't know, but it just seems to me a little bit of a strange thing for Peter and John to be doing. Why are they going up to the temple to pray? They're Christians now. Why are they going up to the Jewish temple to pray? Well, for Peter and John, it's the logical thing to do. And they've gone up there, really, for two reasons. The temple's the place that you go to pray. And the God that they want to pray to, the God that's worshipped at that temple, is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the sensible place for them to go. But there's another reason. They also go there because it's the obvious place to go to talk to people about Jesus. I mean, the people who are going to the temple to pray are the very people who are hoping for the day that God will send his Messiah into the world. So why not go there and tell them that the Messiah has come? The Saviour is here. They're entering into the temple and they come across a crippled man who's there begging at the temple every day. I don't know whether it's his friends that have been very clever or he's the one who's been very clever, but that's a great place to go, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to catch people at a soft moment, it's got to be when they're going up to the temple to pray. I mean, surely that'll be when they're more likely to want to give away their money. Great place for this man to be. And he's asking anyone who walks past for money. And Peter stops, and you see it there in verse 4. The man doesn't even seem to have noticed Peter and John. And Peter says, look at us, and which the man does. And then he tells the crippled man, we actually don't have any gold or silver coins. And then Peter makes this incredible statement. He says, but we do have something that we can give you. And in the name of Jesus, he heals this man. And it really is a remarkable miracle. Because this man had never walked in his life. And we're told that his ankles and legs are strengthened immediately. Not only that he stands up, but he actually jumps up. And then not only does he walk, he doesn't take tentative baby steps. He's, he's walking and leaping and praising God about what has happened. You just want to sing the song again, don't you? I can tell. Walking and leaping and praising God. Now, when you see a miracle like this, you've always got to keep remembering to put it into its wider context. This is not some one-off random event that's happening here that you really can't understand what it is that's taking place. See, there were promises that God made hundreds of years before. Promises that God would do something, that God would act. Passages like this one from the book of... Whoops not up there it comes from Isaiah Isaiah chapter 35 and it says this strengthen the feeble hands steady the knees that give way a friend of mine every time she reads that passage she's pretty sure that God wants everyone to become a physiotherapist that that's the chosen profession for Christians strengthen the feeble hands steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God is coming to save his people, he says through the prophet Isaiah. And how will you know when God has come? The eyes of the blind will be opened. Deaf ears will hear. The lame will walk and leap like a deer. And that's what we saw in the Gospels, isn't it? That's what Jesus does. But the miracles that Jesus did weren't an end in themselves. They weren't the reason that Jesus came. They were just proof that he had come. Proof that he was from God. Proof that he was the one who had come to save. And what Peter says here is that these miracles are still proof that Jesus has come to save. Now, as you can imagine, Peter's miracle has drawn quite the crowd together at the temple. All the regulars at the temple, they knew this guy. They'd seen him begging there because they'd been there every day and seen him begging there every day. They may not have known his name, but they knew who he was. And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. Well, you're not just going to walk past when that happens, are you? You're going to come back and see what it is that's taken place. You want to find out more. And the very first thing that Peter says, look at it there in verse number 12, the very first thing he wants to do is clarify any potential misunderstandings. When Peter saw this, that is the crowds gathering, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Peter wants them to be abundantly clear this has got nothing to do with him or his power or his godliness. And then he goes on to say this in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Yes. There is a miracle that has taken place here, but it's Jesus who continues to be at work. It's Jesus who can take all the glory for what's happened here. It's all been done in his name. And see what Peter said there in verse 12. He he says, why does this surprise you? I think what he's saying is, why are you surprised by this? Jesus was doing this kind of stuff among you for years. And then he proceeds with his mini-sermon, impromptu message. He reminds them that they were the very people who handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be put to death. And he throws in one sentence right there in verse 16 that really must have rung in their ears. Look at what it says, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He reminds them that the coming of Jesus was what God said would happen, that God had promised it hundreds of years before. Now, almost mid-sermon, we have a little chapter heading there and we move to the next episode, which is Peter being arrested. But it's fascinating, at the beginning of that chapter, there are two wildly different responses to this preaching from Peter. Have a look at it. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. The religious leaders are angry about what Peter and John are preaching. But on the other hand, there's a couple of thousand more people who've come to faith in Jesus. These would have been interesting days to be in Jerusalem, wouldn't they? Acts chapter 1, there's around about 20 of them who believe in Jesus. Acts chapter 2, that number grows to 3,000. Acts chapter 3, we're up to 5,000. Those two responses to Peter. There are those whose lives are transformed by this message about Jesus. And there are those who are so offended by it that they want to put Peter and John into jail. Hard to get your head around why you'd want to throw someone into jail when they've performed this incredible miracle. When they've been part of this man, crippled man, now being able to walk. But it still happens in our world today. It's really hard to get exact numbers on it. But there are literally tens of thousands of people in prison camps in North Korea simply because they profess faith in Jesus. There are hundreds more in prison camps in Eritrea simply because they believe in Jesus. Well, Peter and John spend the night in jail and then the following day they are brought before the religious leaders. And verse 8 tells us what happened. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, the religious leaders have no idea what to do. They are completely stumped. The man who was healed is standing right there with Peter and John. I mean, they can't deny that it's happened, so they send Peter and John out and they deliberate. And look what it says in verse number 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done outstanding miracles and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to know, to speak no longer to anyone in the name of Jesus. They're going to do their best to try and stop them from any more preaching about Jesus. Peter and John are brought back in and told that they are not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus again. And Peter's response is there in verse number 19. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. On their release, they get together with the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, and they pray. And I love what they include in their prayer. It's in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats, that is, the religious leaders who are trying to stop them from preaching, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They're not going to slow down. They're not going to stop talking about Jesus. I think when you read through these chapters of Acts, you kind of get this sense of deja vu. It kind of sounds a whole lot like what's already happened in the Gospels, doesn't it? Miracles happening, people being healed, people singing God's praises, and the religious leaders all unhappy about it and trying to figure out how to stop it. But the big difference is, the apostles don't want to take any of the credit for the things that have happened here. They want to point everyone to Jesus and say, he's the one who has done this. Everything is done in the name of Jesus. All the credit goes to Jesus. The big idea of these chapters, in fact, of the whole book of Acts, is that idea of the name. But it's summed up in what Peter says to the religious leaders. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So we just sang in that song, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See, Christianity is not some vague collection of thoughts about God. Christianity is not even a moral code for you to live by. Christianity is not a group that you join. Christianity is about the name. It's about the person that you put your faith in, the name that you trust in. A person who changes lives completely, and a person who deserves our complete attention. And while churches may do many things in the name of Jesus, the most valuable thing that they can do is to help other people to come to know that name so that they too can trust in Jesus. That's our hope. That's our goal, to see more people, more and more people, own the name of Jesus for themselves.